President Biden says if Vladimir Putin gives the order to invade, it could get personal. The lead starts right now. President Biden today is saying he's willing to order sanctions directly on the Russian president if Russian forces enter Ukraine, as CNN teams witness more U.S. military aid arriving in Ukraine. Plus, we've got vaccines, we've got boosters. Now one company is testing a fourth shot, which will be aimed just at the Omicron variant. Then, the one test that could derail Olympic dreams. Athletes in Beijing take us through the intense COVID protection process that one doctor calls a public health extreme. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with the world lead today. President Joe Biden today saying he would consider leveling personal sanctions on Russian President Vladimir Putin if Putin gives the order for Russia to invade Ukraine. Sanctions directly on Putin himself, he means. This as the Kremlin maintains some 100,000 Russian troops strategically positioned near its border with Ukraine. The White House says a Russian invasion appears imminent. Meantime, Russia is accusing the U.S. of escalating tensions by putting 8,500 American service members on heightened alert. They are on standby, though, not ordered to deploy, though the Biden administration says two factors could quickly change that. One, if NATO decides those U.S. service members are needed in Eastern Europe, and two, the actions, of course, of Vladimir Putin himself. Here's the Pentagon press secretary earlier today. If there's another incursion into Ukraine, that certainly, uh, I would believe, could drive NATO and some of our allies to make other forced posture decisions that they, ha- they haven't made yet. Today, CNN's Clarissa Ward spoke exclusively with Ukraine's foreign minister, who said Russia has very little to gain from the current situation. Let's bring Clarissa in right now, live from Kiev, Ukraine. And Clarissa, the foreign minister, uh, was also sensitive about potential deals in diplomacy being made for Ukraine without Ukraine's input. That's right, Jake. I mean, I think what you're seeing here is a classic case of Ukraine not being sat at the negotiating table and understandably feeling a little bit vulnerable as a result. There have been some differences. It's no secret between Ukraine's leadership and some of the actions and rhetoric that we've seen coming from the U.S. and the White House specifically. But the foreign minister told us they are in lockstep from now on. They just want to make sure that the U.S. continues to keep up this strong rhetoric and robust response. Take a listen. The latest tranche of U.S. weapons arrives in Ukraine. On board, 79 tons of lethal aid, including nearly 300 tank armor-piercing Javelin missiles, as the U.S. doubles down on its support of Ukraine. As many as 8,500 U.S. troops are now on high alert, to be deployed to Eastern Europe to join NATO forces. A decision Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba says he welcomes. I think it's a message to Putin that, listen, whatever you are trying to achieve, you get the opposite. If you want us to withdraw from uh, from Central Europe, to withdraw NATO infrastructure from Central Europe, our response to your escalation is reinforcing the eastern flank of NATO. Some have suggested, though, that this shift might actually anger Putin and escalate the crisis further. Are you concerned about that? Well, if we learned anything since 2014, is that uh, it's a flawed logic to handle President Putin from the perspective that let's do nothing in order not to make him angry. No, this is not how it works. Strength, resolve, 
deterrence. These are, these are the three elements that work with Putin. On the other side of the border, yet another show of force from Russia's military, with a scander missile systems on display. The Russian Defense Ministry says the exercises are, quote, to check the troops' battle readiness. Few here have any doubt that Russia is ready to go to war. But the question remains whether that is its intention. So do you believe there will be a military escalation here in Ukraine? This depends. I cannot read President Putin's mind. Can anyone? Frankly, no. I don't think anyone can do that. We are literally in a situation where anything can happen. How does Putin at this stage de-escalate without losing face? We shouldn't really care uh, how President Putin will save his face for one simple reason, because he himself, he put himself in this situation. If Russia is willing to act in good faith, there is a possibility to walk out from the negotiating room and say, we made a deal. But Kuleba warns that Ukraine will not be pushed into making concessions. We will not be in a position of a country that picks up the phone, hears the instruction of the big power and follows it. No. We paid a lot, including 15,000 lives of our citizens, to secure the right to decide our own future, our own destiny. And we will not allow anyone to impose any concessions on us. With all sides dug in, the prospects for a diplomatic solution are dim. But Ukraine's leadership says the cost of failure would extend far beyond these front lines. And if the United States leadership fails here, it will be a clear message to the contesters of the United States that... Uh, America is a different country now, and they can push. And in the end, if they push, I've, I'm afraid that it will be the people of America who will feel the repercussions of that push. Mr. Kaleba went on to say that if someone does come here demanding concessions from the Ukraine, and they feel, by the way, that Ukraine has already uh, given much in terms of dealing with the Russians in previous diplomatic uh, agreements and discussions that have been had, and he said simply that if someone comes and demands those concessions, he will call the protocol officer and have them accompanied back to the airport, Jake. So not mincing words and not pulling any punches here. All right, Clarissa Ward in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much for that report. Here to discuss Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona. He's on the House Armed Services Committee. He also served as a Marine in the Iraq War. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with uh, Clarissa's exclusive conversation there with Ukraine's foreign minister. He does not want to see any deals made behind Ukraine's back. Given that, if Russia were to invade, do you think the U.S. and NATO need to consult Ukraine before they decide on any kind of response? Absolutely. Look, you cannot override a country's sovereignty uh, in order to gain peace with an aggressor nation like Russia, especially considering that Russia is the person that has been the provocateur this whole time. Uh, and so our job is to really help, uh, you know, Ukraine uh, deter Russia, make sure that, you know, Russia understands that there'll be some really costly, uh, you know, some really costly consequences, whether it is kinetic in sense of, you know, Russians themselves, troops dying and or economic sanctions. And we should be doing that, you know, in conjunction with the country of Ukraine. 
you served in war. It's not an abstraction to you. Uh, when you hear that 8,500 U.S. service members are on standby, possibly heading to Eastern Europe and who knows where else, um, do you think that's an appropriate decision right now uh, for, from President Biden to, to put them on standby? I think it's important. Look, I've, I've had to done some of those standbys back in my younger days. Uh, but more importantly, we're doing it not to just deter Russia, but we're also doing it to, to really bring confidence on our allies, especially our allies on the Eastern Front. They're severely worried about what's going to happen, whether Russia is going to roll through Ukraine and move into a lot of the former Soviet bloc nations. This is why, as uh, chairman and, uh, of the subcommittee on special operations at Intel, I authored the Baltic Security Initiative that gave $150 million to our Baltic countries so they could defend themselves because they are right now on the front lines and they are worried. They're worried that, that Russia will not stop at Ukraine, that they will continue with their aggressive uh, actions all to the Eastern Europe. What do you say when a constituent says to you, why are we even involved in this? We, we, Ukraine's not a NATO country. Uh, we don't have any interests in that region in terms of uh, economic interests. This is Russia's business. Why are we even talking about deploying uh, American service members to that area? What, what do you say? Well, number one, we already have men and women deployed to that area. But number two, stability in Europe is entirely important depending on what happens in Ukraine. Having a country of 200 million attack a country of 60 million uh, is not going to end well. And we've seen in history, especially in the last century, that land wars, especially massive land wars in Europe, will always somehow involve us. So it's best that we could do uh, for stability, for economic well-being, that we actually deter Russia instead of finding ourselves in a war that later on we may, may have to you know, be more seriously involved in. Number two, you know, our standing in the world does matter. We cannot let a democratically elected government in Ukraine be overrun by an autocratic government without any consequences. It would send a very strong message to all autocratic nations in the world that it's free game, that they can basically break all the rules-based governments, uh, rules-based that we have established for the last you know, 150 years uh, and just start rolling through other countries. Specifically, I guarantee you China will be looking uh, directly at what happens in Ukraine and trying to take examples of what should, they should or should not do uh, in Taiwan. We know the Department of Homeland Security here is monitoring possible Russian cyber attacks, perhaps on large U.S. banks or an American utility company, in, in case that there is a military escalation. How easily could Russia cripple American infrastructure uh, if it wanted to? Look, I think at any point, you know, our, our infrastructure, our cyber infrastructure could be attacked. The most important thing you can do, obviously, besides the you know, safety measures, is for Russia to understand that, that those types of actions will have severe consequences. There needs to be deterrence uh, in every aspect, especially when it comes to the cyber world, where Russia seems to think that they can actly you know, act without any, with, with impunity. Uh, so any type of aggression should be met uh, with consequences. That's the only thing that Russia understands. They are not the victim here. They're the aggressor here. In order for us to really keep them in line, they have to understand that you know, aggressive actions will have aggressive consequences. Before you go, Congressman, uh, you told CNN that fellow Democrats have been encouraging you to launch a, a primary challenge against Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema in 2024. And, and today, Punchbowl News reported that you met with some of her donors last weekend in New York City. Um, you haven't ruled out a primary run. Uh, so at, at this point, what, what's stopping you? 
Well, number one, we need to focus on 2022, especially here in Arizona. We are a swing state. We have a great center, Senator Kelly, that gets reelected. Uh, I have a, a big legislative agenda that I want to continue working on. Uh, but 2023 is around the corner. Uh, when 23 arrives, I'll be making a decision and publicly making an announcement. In the meantime, I'm going to continue making sure Arizona keeps trending the right way. And I'll have meetings with anybody that's interested in talking to me about that race. And it hasn't just been donors. It's been everyday Arizonans. It's been labor unions. It's been you know, a lot of the groups that have t- helped turn Arizona blue state. So uh, those conversations will be ongoing. Uh, and then that decision will come in 2023. Did those donors in New York City say that they would support you if you challenged her? Yes, to be honest, I have gotten a lot of that uh, assurances. I've gotten assurances not just from New York City, but from all over the country here in Arizona. Uh, uh, you know, but again, the determination is going to be based everything on number one, actually, what the voters of Arizona want, and number two, uh, really, you know, talking to my family and, and making that decision in 2023. Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, sir. Boris Johnson had his cake and he ate it too, and now he's paying the price. Could a birthday party? bring down the British Prime Minister. Then he's still standing, but Elton John is being forced to cancel his concerts. Stick around. In our Healthy Today, Pfizer announcing it has started clinical trials for its Omicron-specific coronavirus vaccine. The company says it has already started manufacturing the shot. And as CNN's Alexandra Field reports, the vaccine could be available as soon as March if it gets the correct sign-off. I don't think there's a chance that we're going to eradicate this. But Dr. Fauci says a national turnaround could be just a week or two away when it comes to the Omicron surge. And the World Health Organization is hoping the emergency phase of the pandemic will end this year. I think normal is going to look like many of these peaks and valleys of surges. Nationwide, hospitalizations are now lower than they were a week ago, but deaths are higher than a week ago. While Omicron cases are often mild or without symptoms for most vaccinated adults, the country is now averaging more than 2,000 deaths daily. That's above the Delta peak last September. I think most of us would like to see the number of deaths drop about to about 100 deaths per day, in which in that case will put you at, the, at par with approximately the number of deaths we see from the flu on a yearly basis. Israel's COVID-19 advisory board is now recommending a fourth COVID shot for all adults, citing the effectiveness of boosters, while Pfizer announces its Omicron-specific vaccine is in clinical trials. Public health officials continue to say a universal vaccine able to target future variants will bring us the closest to normal. Until then... We need to develop sort of an idea about how we sort of go back and forth between protecting ourselves, protecting others, and kind of keeping those good habits going if we want to have sort of a new normal. What that looks like is sparking everything from debates to court battles. In New York City, Sarah Palin allegedly flouting COVID-19 restrictions by dining inside a restaurant while unvaccinated on Saturday and then testing positive on Monday, delaying her defamation trial against the New York Times. An attorney for Palin declined to comment. In New York State, a state judge blocking the governor's mask mandate. The Department of Education rejecting the ruling, saying schools must still follow the mask rule. And another stage goes dark. Sir Elton John testing positive for COVID, delaying two concerts in Dallas. 
And Jake, when it comes to vaccine mandates for big businesses, the Biden administration announcing they are withdrawing the regulation that was targeting businesses of 100 or more employees. That move, of course, after the Supreme Court blocked the rule earlier this month in a closely watched decision. Jake. Alexandra Field, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, why would we need an Omicron-specific vaccine if we're starting to see cases and hospitalizations fall off and it seems likely that there will be another variant that comes after that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we're often finding ourselves in these positions where we're, we're working on developing these things but they don't really arrive at the time that we need them. We've seen them with therapeutics, even with the testing, and now potentially with this uh, Omicron-specific booster. Couple things, you know, each time there's been a new variant, they have worked on specific boosters for that, and we really haven't needed them because the existing shots have provided a lot of benefit. That, that's good. Uh, the numbers may drop off by March or April when this, this booster may be available, but we've seen evidence of those the shots waning in terms of their effectiveness. So could you potentially have some resurgences later on in the spring or early summer? Perhaps. Probably not, but perhaps. So I think that those are two reasons they sort of want to keep this in the back pocket. We don't know even at this point whether the trial will demonstrate that an Omicron-specific booster is of any more benefit yet either. But those are the two main reasons. Might there be a resurgence? Might the vaccines wane in terms of effectiveness? The U.S. has followed uh, Israel in a lot of ways in terms of how we respond and deal with uh, this virus. Today, Israel's COVID advisory group recommended a a fourth vaccine dose for all adults. Do you think that will ultimately happen here? And and if you do, how, how soon? Well, I think this, this sort of dovetails on what we were just talking about in part. I think that they do want to see if a fourth shot is necessary. What kind of shot should it be? Should it be a, a shot of the existing vaccine or should it be specific? I can tell you we've been following Israel's data pretty carefully. The early data on fourth shots um, was did not paint a very compelling picture <clears throat> to, to actually recommend that across the board. They did have this advisory group, which has recommended this fourth shot, but we still got to hear from the Ministry of Health on that. I think it's going to just sort of depend. Can you make the case that the fourth shot is definitively uh, decreasing infections, decreasing symptomatic illness. Um, we know right now people who have the booster, they tend to have pretty good, pretty good protection against those things as it is. Let's talk about boosters because there's this new preprint lab study uh, that shows that Omicron neutralizing antibodies last for at least several months after a booster. This comes on the heels of other studies showing how effective booster shots are. What's your main takeaway from this new study? Well, I find this really, really interesting. If we can show the data basically looking first at cases and then looking at symptomatic illness. And what they did was they compared unvaccinated, which is the far left, to fully vaccinated to people who have been boosted. So middle column is two shots. The big, the big discrepancy here, Jake, is clearly between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated, period. So we talk about boosters and you can understand why, because there is an incremental benefit from getting the booster. But really, and this is still a story about the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated. But to your specific question, if you look at the, the time frame now and you look at, OK, it's been at least six months since I've had my shots versus within six months and then add a booster. So if you if you got your shot six months ago, more than six months ago, look at your protection around 57 percent. That's against hospitalization fully vaccinated less than six months ago, uh, 81%, so a significant jump there. And then if you add the boost in, it gets to 90%. 
So what this is basically saying is, yes, the vaccine effectiveness does wane. The booster does make an impact, especially if you've gotten your first shots more than six months ago. So shockingly, average daily deaths have now surpassed the peak of the Delta surge. The U.S. is averaging nearly 2,200 deaths every day because of the virus. How much worse do you think this is going to get before we see that turn around? Well, you know, I mean, the, the, um, it's tough to think about, but the cases, you know, as, as we've seen in many parts of the country, have started to decline. It's a little bit of a mixed picture in the United States because you've got different areas of the country that are behaving differently. You can see on the, on the map of the United States sort of where hospitalizations are still going up. Um, and, you know, that's, that's obviously a concern in those, those orange areas. One thing I will say quickly, Jake, if I can show you how Omicron sort of behaves, if someone ends up getting sick from Omicron, there's a lot of people getting infected and a lot of people ending up in the hospital. But overall, the chance of being admitted to the ICU or dying is still lower with Omicron. The reason the numbers are so high is because this is such a contagious virus and so many people are getting infected. So less lethal, but more contagious. That's the problem. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. What happens when the January 6th committee talks to one of the country's most prominent deranged conspiracy theories? Well, we'll tell you what happens. That's next. Just in, in our politics lead, in an exclusive interview, the Justice Department is giving the first indication that the individuals behind the effort to push so-called alternate electors fraudulent electors that erroneously would have declared Donald Trump the winner in states that he decided had lost. These individuals are under federal scrutiny. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins us now live for the story. Evan, you just spoke with the deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco, for an exclusive interview. What did she have to say? Well, Jake, we know that a number of states uh, have been looking at, at these uh, fake electors, these uh, bogus electors that were set up by people associated with Donald Trump. Uh, for the first time, we're hearing from the deputy attorney general what the Justice Department is doing about that. Take a listen. We've now learned that there was this big effort by the former administration, of senior people in the former administration, uh, to interfere with the vote counts on the state level. Voters want to know whether, uh, you know, enough has been done to deter partisan interference in election results. I mean, what can you say to assure people? Uh, because there's very little that we've seen publicly said by this department on, on this issue. Well, first, on uh, the issue you raised uh, in terms of uh, fraudulent uh, elector certifications is, has been reported. We've received those referrals. Our prosecutors are looking at, the, at those, and um, I can't say uh, anything more on ongoing investigations. Um, but more broadly, um, look, uh, the attorney general has been very, very clear. We are going to follow the facts and the law wherever they lead uh, to address conduct of any kind and at any level um, that is part of an assault on our democracy. And Jake, uh, part of what is going on b- beyond what happened in 2020, we know that there are a lot of people who are driven by those, by those falsehoods about election fraud who are making threats against election workers. Uh, we talked uh, a little bit about that. And one of the things that, that the deputy attorney general said is that, uh, you know, we saw one indictment against someone last week. She says to expect several more. All right. Accountability. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Right. Appreciate it. Also in our politics lead right wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones is the latest person to meet with the House Select Committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection. Jones telling listeners on his podcast that he pleaded the Fifth Amendment almost 
100 times. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, tell us what happened. Well, Jake Jones met virtually Monday with the committee, and he spoke about his experience on his podcast where he described the interview as intense and said he did indeed take the fifth nearly 100 times on the advice of counsel. Now, why would he do that? Well, he said the questions were reasonable, but he did not want to answer all of them for fear of perjuring himself. Let's take a listen to how he explained it. I'm the type that tries to answer things correctly, even though I don't know all the answers. And they can then try to claim that that's perjury. Because about half the questions I didn't know the answer to. And a bunch of them were emails I'd never seen. And planning things I'd never seen, at least from memory. He said the panel asked him repeatedly who his White House contact was to help with the planning and organizing rallies in the days leading up to January 6th. And he denounced any suggestion that he was involved in planning violence during the insurrection. Jake. All right. Paul Reed, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the extreme COVID protection measures, which could cost some athletes who've been training for their lifetimes the chance at realizing their Olympic dreams. Stay with us. In our national lead, police in Miami Beach, Florida, are investigating after anti-Semitic flyers were found throughout multiple neighborhoods over the last few days and after the attack at the Texas synagogue earlier this month. The city's mayor is saying they cannot just sit by and assume it's an act of, quote, harmless stupidity. As CNN's Leila Santiago reports for us now, the mayor is taking new steps to try to protect all faith communities while the investigation heats up. This is what hate looks like. A flyer delivered in the middle of the night to more than 200 Miami Beach homes, according to city officials, targeting Jews, falsely claiming the public health response to COVID is being orchestrated by Jewish people. At first, I thought it was targeted to me until I started you know, just looking around and seeing every house was. But so this is kind of like shocked a lot of people that have lived on the island for over 50 years. The mayor of Miami Beach, a city with a large Jewish community, called it pure garbage, a display of hate yet again. We're not going to pretend like it doesn't exist. We're going to stand up and say, you know, screw you. You know, we, we, it's garbage what this, what this guy or these people did. And we have to say that because if right-thinking people don't speak out against this kind of stuff, then people begin to think that it's okay and it's normalized. We're already living in a moment where we've seen a remarkable rise in anti-Semitic incidents. We have about double the number of acts of harassment, vandalism, and violence today than we did just a few years ago. And this weekend, we had these anti-Semitic flyers dropped in six different states. Over the weekend in San Francisco, police officers collected flyers with some of that same anti-Semitic language. In Colorado, flyers now under investigation distributed in Denver. The ADL also reports flyer distribution in Wisconsin, Maryland, and Texas over the weekend. Meanwhile, at a rally in D.C., anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Even in Hitler, Germany, you could you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You can hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. He has since apologized. Even his wife tweeted, my husband's reference to Anne Frank at a mandate rally in D.C. was reprehensible and insensitive. The atrocities that millions endured during the Holocaust should never be compared to anyone or anything. His opinions are not a reflection of my own. The Anti-Defamation League reports a sharp increase over the last decade in anti-Semitic incidents. The dangerous rhetoric concerning city leaders. Uh, When any group that is 
that has hate thrown against them, prejudice thrown against them, vile falsehoods thrown against them, have a reason to be concerned because it's just one part of a continuum. As somebody who's willing to put flyers in front of over uh, 200 homes in the dead of night, well, are they willing to throw a rock through a window? Are they willing to use a weapon? And you know, Jake, as I've spent time in this community today, I've talked to the mayor, talked to a local rabbi, the, the neighbors here, there is definitely a sense of fear and vulnerability, but also a need to call this out for what it is, to call this out as hate. Police tell me that they are working with the FBI now. Uh, they have located the rental car they believe to be associated with it. Mayor says that they have some pretty solid leads here and feels confident they will get to the bottom of who is responsible. Jake? All right, Leila Santiago in Miami Beach, Florida for us today. Thank you so much. Also in our national lead, some sad and awful news out of New York City. Wilbert Mora, the second NYPD officer shot while responding to a domestic incident on Friday, has died. Officer Mora was only 27 years old. He and fellow officer Jason Rivera, who was also killed during the incident, both were shot when a suspected gunman opened fire in a Harlem apartment. A third officer on the scene shot the suspect, who later died. New York's mayor calls Mora a hero and says, quote, our hearts are heavy. Our city is in mourning. Coming up next, a police investigation now underway involving the British prime minister's birthday party. We'll explain why. Topping our world lead, it's my birthday and I'll party if I want to. CNN affiliate ITV reporting that British prime minister Boris Johnson celebrated his own birthday with two parties during the strict COVID lockdown in 2020. Now, London's Metropolitan Police announced that it is investigating allegations of his attendance at lockdown parties. CNN's Bianca Nubila joins us now live from London. Bianca, how is the prime minister responding to just this latest new round of accusations? We've had some practice now, Jake, at responding to allegations of parties in Downing Street during strict lockdowns. For the rest of the country, he said that he welcomes the investigation because he wants clarity for the British people and he hopes that this will draw a line under it. I think he's backed into a corner in terms of what he can say because, from what I understand, Downing Street are obviously not welcoming this investigation. Although I must say, as a sign of the severity of the political danger that Boris Johnson is in, I was speaking to some allies of his this morning And they actually thought this news of a police investigation into the prime minister in Downing Street might provide them with a slight reprieve from the other investigation, which is looking into whether or not Boris Johnson broke his own COVID rules, because they thought it might delay this preliminary investigation that they were concerned about. Then it dawned on them that the look of having the police investigate Downing Street probably wasn't very good or electorally (laughs) advantageous. And now... They're concerned about it, but the the head of the Metropolitan Police said that she would only be investigating such historical allegations because, of course, these parties that we're discussing occurred in 2020, 2021 if they were serious, flagrant breaches of the coronavirus guidelines and she thought might undermine faith or trust in the law or be committed by people fully aware that they were committing an offence. And more broadly, how is this playing out for Prime Minister Johnson politically? Well, it's been said many times that the Prime Minister's got a number of political lives. I like to think of him as somewhat of a political vampire because he's defied convention and expectations before. But I think this 
could be sounding the death knell of his premiership. He's on the precipice of a vote of no confidence, which in the United Kingdom, in the Conservative Party, is triggered by a certain number of letters being sent by his own MPs into a certain committee. If that happens, there's a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister. At this stage, most people I speak to think we're very close to that threshold being met. And the jury's out as to whether or not Boris Johnson would survive that vote of no confidence. But... Jake, where this particular scandal to a prime minister who's been beleaguered by so many strikes me as different is the fact that the key aspects of his political brand that made him a historic election winner and this charismatic politician, the frivolity, his mischief, his rule breaking have become the very architects of his own deepest political danger. And just to remind our, our viewers, he was going to these parties allegedly at the same time his protocols were not letting people go to funerals for their own loved ones, etc. Bianca Nobilo in London, thank you so much. Appreciate, appreciate the reporting. And our sports lead, the COVID impact on the upcoming Olympic Games in China. Athletes and team officials are getting a jarring greeting as they arrive in Beijing. Security personnel at airports and at train stations in full protective gear. Then a rigorous process to protect Olympians, which CNN's Selena Wang reports can take quite a toll. For Winter Olympic athletes, just getting to Beijing is as nerve-wracking as competing for gold. Nearly 3,000 athletes will be gathering under the world's strictest COVID countermeasures. They've trained their entire careers for this moment, but a positive COVID test could derail it all. One positive test is going to do us in at this point. It's super stressful. I didn't know that I really struggled with anxiety, to be totally honest, until like the past couple months. U.S. mogul skier Hannah Soares and her teammates have been isolating in Utah for the past month. They live in separate homes, socially distance on the mountains, order groceries for delivery. No one's looked at each other in the eyes. I haven't literally been inside anywhere besides this house for the past month. Soares even wears a KN95 mask under her neck warmer on the slopes. And so I just treat everyone like they have COVID. And it creates a lot of anxiety in my life, but hopefully it gets me to China. (laughs) Athletes have to test negative for COVID twice before boarding a plane, once within 96 hours and another within 72 hours before departure, then daily tests in Beijing. Organizers are relying on sensitive PCR tests, which means recently recovered, but healthy athletes could potentially be isolated or barred from competing. They've gone to the public health extreme. That test is so sensitive, it is merely picking up remnants of the virus. You are not contagious to anyone else. Organizers aren't taking any chances. The host country is sticking to its zero COVID policy, where just one case can trigger lockdowns and mass testing. During the Tokyo Summer Olympics here, 41 athletes tested positive for COVID. At least two dozen had to withdraw from competition. Now with Omicron and even stricter rules at the Beijing Games, it's inevitable some athletes are going to lose their chance to compete. A positive test could send an athlete into isolation at a facility in China until they get two consecutive negative tests, which experts say could take weeks. Olympians will be completely separate from the rest of China, part of what organizers are calling a closed-loop system, multiple bubbles connected by dedicated shuttles. Then there's the mountainous venues, Yanqing and Zhangjiakou, north of Beijing, all connected by high-speed rails. 
British skeleton racer Laura Dees was in Yanqing last fall for training. Everything that we did, we, you know, uh, training, eating, sleeping was all within this bubble. Um, but it felt incredibly organized. Ahead of the game, she's self-isolating in the UK and getting creative training without a gym. While Dees knows what to expect in Beijing, it's the next few days that are the most tense. I've jumped all of these hurdles over the past few years to get to this point, and I'm just, you know, just trying really hard to do all the right things now so that I can get to Beijing safely without COVID. For athletes this year, just stepping foot into the Olympic bubble will be a victory. And Jake, American skier Hannah Soares tells me even when she gets into Beijing, she's still staying on guard, socially distanced, away from parties, even as a journalist traveling to Beijing soon. The past few weeks have been full of careful and sometimes stressful preparation. But for Beijing, this is all part of the plan to keep COVID out, no matter the cost. Jake. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're going to go inside the never-issued Trump executive order that could have theoretically delayed Joe Biden's inauguration and perhaps even upended American democracy and who knows what else. That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, not tough enough. L.A.'s new district attorney being criticized for policy changes he says make the criminal justice system fairer, but some of his own prosecutors say is making city life more dangerous. Plus, the Mitch Pitch... Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell talking with CNN about his plan to win seats in November's midterm elections. And this news comes with a caveat that Donald Trump might not like. But leading this hour, imminent invasion. The White House today saying Russia may be on the cusp of sending troops into Ukraine again, as the Ukrainian foreign minister exclusively sits down with CNN and admits, quote, anything can happen. We're covering this story from every city at the center of the standoff. Matthew Chance in Kiev, Ukraine, Nick Robertson in Moscow, Russia. But let's start in Washington, D.C. with CNN's MJ Lee at the White House with new insight into President Biden's thinking on whether he should send U.S. forces into Eastern Europe or even into Ukraine. I'll be completely honest with you. It's a little bit like reading tea leaves. President Biden on high alert as tensions continue to simmer on the Russia-Ukraine border. Visiting a clothing store in Washington, D.C. Tuesday, the president suggesting it is nearly impossible to predict whether and when Vladimir Putin might invade Ukraine. There's been no change in the posture of the Russian forces. This is all Putin. I don't think even his people know for certain what he's going to do. This, as the Biden administration already has some 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened alert for deployment. The Pentagon now saying that number could increase in the coming days. But the president making this assurance. We have no intention of putting American forces or NATO forces in Ukraine. A frenzy of activity this week. National security officials holding classified briefings with congressional staffers on the situation in Ukraine. We're also working on all members briefings for the House and the Senate in the coming days. American citizens in Ukraine, including non-essential staff at the U.S. Embassy, urged to leave the country while the U.S. prepares to share its concerns with Russia in writing. And a warning from the Department of Homeland Security that if provoked, Russia could launch a cyber attack against the U.S. Broadly, we are always preparing for any, um, any action that uh, related to cyber or any other activity that any country could take. The president in close consultation with world leaders. We're all on the same page. We've got to make it clear that uh, 
um, that there's no reason for anyone, any member of NATO, to worry whether or not we would, we NATO, would come to their defense. The diplomatic push continues with Putin set to talk by phone with French President Emmanuel Macron this week. Ukraine's foreign minister telling CNN the readiness of American troops speaks volumes. I think it's a message to Putin that, listen, whatever you are trying to achieve, you get the opposite. So President Biden making clear that he is leaving many, many options on the table, including the possibility of personally sanctioning Vladimir Putin. And Jake, on the question of whether the president may be speaking again with Vladimir Putin, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki telling reporters today no announcement on that front, but that Biden is always open to engaging at a leader-to-leader level. Jake. MJ Lee at the White House, thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss senior international correspondent Matthew Chance, who's in Kiev international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson, who is in Moscow. Matthew, let me start with you today. The White House press secretary said that a Russian invasion of Ukraine remains, quote, imminent. Ukraine disputes that. They say that that's not the case. What are you hearing? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're, they're pushing back Ukrainian officials that I've spoken to on that characterization that the, the threat is imminent, saying that, look, you know, we've got defense officials here, uh, intelligence assessors looking at satellite photographs from the US and from other Western intelligence agencies on an hourly basis. And they say they're not seeing um, Russia forces getting into combat mode or positioning themselves uh, for an attack. And so they, they really are pushing back on that. They're saying it's dangerous, the situation, rather than imminent. Uh, furthermore, uh, the Ukrainian official that I've spoken to said that, you know, according to um, the defence assessment here, the intelligence assessment here, uh, no order appears to have been given to the Russian forces. And remember, there are tens of thousands of them that have massed near the border of the country across the other side of it, mainly on Russian territory. No order has been given yet. But even if an order comes down, it could take between one week and two weeks before those forces, as they're currently arranged, would be ready to uh, actually move in and stage some kind of incursion or some kind of invasion. So yet again, we've seen, while on the one hand, publicly, Ukrainian officials welcoming the support they're getting from the United States. In fact, uh, one Ukrainian uh, presidential advisor telling me this evening uh, that the United States has really been stepping up its uh, military support and its diplomatic support uh, for Ukraine over the past couple of days. And that's very welcome uh, here in Kiev. There is a difference of opinion uh, when it comes to particularly the language. And there's been some frustration expressed uh, by Ukrainian officials about the way, for instance, President Biden uh, suggested that a minor incursion uh, may be met met with a lesser response uh, than a full invasion, although that language was was massaged by by the White House. And of course, a decision earlier this week by the United States to allow uh, diplomats to leave the country because of the security situation and to order families of diplomats out of the country. There's been some frustration, as I say, expressed by Ukrainian officials about that. Uh, Nick uh, Robertson, in in Moscow, the Kremlin is accusing the Biden administration of of escalating tensions uh, after uh, Biden told the Pentagon to order 8,500 U.S. service members uh, to be on standby to basically prepare for a possible deployment to Eastern Europe. Um, How would Russia respond uh, if they were actually deployed? 
At the moment, they, they're really sort of holding their position. That is, they're going to negotiate uh, with the United States and NATO on their key demands. They're waiting for the responses. The diplomatic crack is open there, if you will, sort of on a pause, waiting for those written responses to come in. Uh, but yes, the, the Kremlin spokesman today said that that possible deployment would be a, a cause for concern. He also said a cause for concern is what he described as a Ukrainian military buildup of troops and military hardware close to the uh, front line with the pro-Russian separatists in the east of Ukraine, in the Donbass region. And the Kremlin spokesman said that's something that the, the, the uh, President Putin's diplomatic representative from the pres Russian presidency will raise tomorrow in Paris with the Ukrainian representative and the German and French representative at the Normandy format talks. This is talks uh, that began uh, seven years ago to get over the Russia's initial invasion of Ukraine back in 2014. It deals with the so-called Minsk II agreement. But this seems to be an area where President Putin thinks that he might be able to get some concessions. And this is, you know, a potential opportunity because uh, France and Germany, who will sit at the table as well, do not have quite a stronger position on Russia as the United States does and as the UK does, for example. And again, R Russia and Ukraine representatives, low-level diplomats, at the same table tomorrow. Jake? All right. Nick Robertson in Moscow, Matthew Chance in Kiev. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Joining us live to discuss, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Finman, former European Affairs Director uh, for the National Security Council during the Trump administration. I, I want to start, Lieutenant Colonel, with the report we just heard from Matthew Chance that the Ukrainians are not happy with White House comments that an invasion to them seems Im imminent. Um, what's your reaction? What goes through your head when you hear that reporting? Well, there's, uh, I could understand from the Ukrainian perspective why they might want to downplay it. Part of it is this idea that the, if if they do in fact start to build up forces too early, that could be that could precipitate the the Russian aggression in their mind. Uh, they also want to keep their population calm. But to me, the most important thing it's it's not the words and the rhetoric uh, certainly coming from the Russian side, but it's the deeds. They've built up a massive force. They've basically closed off all the possibilities of reaching a, a diplomatic. A settlement on this by staking out such a hard position on what they want. Uh, they want a uh, ironclad guarantee that uh, Ukraine would not end up in NATO. They want to uh, redesign the European security architecture. And uh, between leaving no door for diplomacy and this massive military buildup, unprecedented, uh, it seems to me uh, clear that the Russians are uh, on the cusp of taking action. I think it's going to be in middle of February. It's something that I've been watching you know, since since uh, October, November. Uh, and this, uh, I think it's bearing out in fact now. If you were advising President Biden today, what, what what's the next move you would recommend? I think uh, in terms of deterrence, we have um, probably little that we can do at this point. I think the things that are, are starting to come to bear, uh, some cohesion, coherence around sanctions, the, the forces that are, are being signaled that will go into Eastern Europe, the military equipment going into um, into Ukraine, those will start to affect the Russian calculus in some ways, complicated, complicating it and maybe even locking in uh, action now as opposed to in the future. Right. We have thousands of uh, 
surface-to-air and anti-tank capability uh, missiles going into Ukraine. It's just going to get harder as Ukraine integrates them. But it's all based off of this assessment that uh, a offensive is all but certain to happen, and this is not what precipitates it. This is what could deter it. So I think the, the things to do now to prepare for the day after to posture the United States to secure U.S. national security interests, to secure NATO, and um, be prepared to act when Russia conducts its offensive. President Biden was asked today about the possibility of, of sending U.S. service members not just into Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern European nations that are NATO allies, but into Ukraine directly, even though Ukraine is not uh, a NATO member state. Take a listen to what he had to say. We have no intention of putting American forces or NATO forces in Ukraine. But uh, we, I, I, as I said, there are going to be serious economic consequences if he moves. What's your reaction to that? Do you think there's anything that Putin could do that would cause the U.S. to send service members directly into Ukraine? Uh, I think I think that's a, a, a quite a realistic possibility. Although I think every intention is to keep U.S. forces out. Uh, the nature of this this offensive that's about to take place, it will be the largest offensive in Europe since World War II. It's going to uh, implicate Eastern European security, Eastern European allies of ours within NATO, the Baltic states, Poland, uh, Romania are likely to provide support if the Russians uh, decide to go for even beyond the kind of scary scenario that I've laid out, a all-out offensive uh, from the north, east, and, and south, and and uh, seize large portions of uh, Russia of Ukrainian territory. For some some amount of time, I think there's a chance that the U.S. could could ultimately get drawn in. That's why I've been urging this administration to take action early to deter Russian aggression. I think we're we're likely beyond that point. We are now facing a geopolitical inflection point. One of those relatively rare occurrences that will drive geopolitics uh, in the coming years, maybe decade, and uh, we need to be prepared to signal that this is not going to be tolerated. Russia is the largest military power in Europe, but in the big scheme of things, it's it's really quite uh, small in terms of economic power, and we need to leverage all our tools to limit the the uh, fallout from this these events that are about to unfold and ensure that the Western uh, democratic order uh, continues to persevere uh, when when the uh, this is going to be a, a um, fairly significant impact on the Western liberal order with an attack on a, a democracy, Ukrainian democracy. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, what, what would you say to somebody who's watching at home who says, look, I, I get that uh, your, your family is from Ukraine uh, originally. You, you feel very passionately about protecting uh, that democracy. Uh, but, but on the other hand, you served in Iraq uh, and you still have shrapnel in your body uh, from that war. And I'm speaking now for this hypothetical viewer. And I don't feel comfortable with one American service member. Uh, getting injured or killed fighting this war? What, what would you say to them? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think it's important to uh, just knock down this idea of, of uh, dual alliances. It's something that the far right has uh, attempted to attack me with to undermine my credibility during the first impeachment trial of, of uh, Donald Trump. My concerns I, I'm have not, always I'm been not, for I'm US not, No, no, no. I, I'm I, not impugning. I'm, I'm not only to impugn your... your no, I, 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 I just, I, I just mean... Why, just the, the large... I apologize if, if, you, if you thought that I was, I was suggesting that. You, I, I'm talking to about... about I, Jake, I'm, I okay. understand where you're going. I'm just talking about the hypothetical viewer that uh, I, I okay. you're definitely not implying that. But that, my, my concerns have always been uh, U.S. Uh, national security interests 
above all else. I spent 21 and a half years in, in military service. And this is all about everybody that's, uh, I think the uh, consensus of you now that's assembling, maybe a little bit late around what's going on, is about protecting US national security interests. It's about making sure that this geopolitical catastrophe that looks like it's about to unfold does not further harm US interests, does not further undermine US standing, does not further undermine the, uh, the uh, Western democratic order that's been uh, constructed and resulted in US pros uh, prosperity since World War II. It's uh, intended to avoid dragging in the US into another European conflict like it was in uh, twice into two world wars. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about taking the appropriate steps to secure the US interests, to prevent uh, uh, something that could end up becoming much, much bigger. That's what we're talking right. about. We're not talking about committing US uh, troops to, to combat in Ukraine. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, thank you so much. And as always, thank you for your service, sir. Inside the terrifying executive order that could have ended America's peaceful transfer of power, if Donald Trump had actually signed it, then this is trash from hundreds of packages stolen from trains in one of America's biggest cities. And it's just one of the crimes fueling outrage aimed at Los Angeles's top prosecutor. Stay with us. In our politics lead, three pages, three pieces of paper that could have upended the long-standing American tradition of separation between U.S. elections and the U.S. military. I'm referring to a draft of an executive order dated December 16th, 2020, that went, thankfully, unsigned by then outgoing President Donald Trump. It would have directed the Secretary of Defense to seize voting machines in key states that President Biden won. As CNN's Tom Foreman reports, the origin of the draft order and how close it came to reality remain murky. But if it had been signed, it could have plunged the country into God knows what. It reads like a fictional thriller. The inauguration postponed, voting machines seized by the military, and Donald Trump's presidential power extended by weeks while his hand-picked investigators decide who won the election. We won this election, and we won it by a landslide. The December 2020 draft executive order could have triggered all of that if it had been signed and enacted before Joe Biden's win was certified. It's a lawless document uh, and really breathtaking in, in <laughs> its approach to uh, our American democracy. So what's in it? According to Politico, the draft is a patchwork of conspiracy theories and dubious legal arguments previously pushed by Team Trump. For starters, the paper claims President Trump had a constitutional right to declare an emergency and pull in the Pentagon based on probable cause the vote was rife with fraud. And decertification of the election. Court after court had already dismissed those claims. The sheer brazenness and, uh, you know, the, the illegality of it all uh, is, is pretty shocking. Chris Krebs once served as Trump's cybersecurity advisor. This is a violation on its face of uh, Posse Comitatus Act, which is a restriction on using federal troops for domestic law enforcement action. But there is more. The paper cites a supposed forensic report that found Dominion voting machines used in several battleground states were intentionally and purposefully designed with inherent errors to create systematic fraud and influence election results. 
The draft falsely says Dominion is owned and controlled by foreign entities, adding multiple expert witnesses identified acts of foreign interference in the election. But that report was soundly debunked by a much more comprehensive analysis by the state of Michigan. And while a judge cited in the draft did question whether Dominion machines might be subject to tampering, the paper claims it happened. Witnesses in Georgia have provided evidence of crashes, the replacement of a server, impermissible updates. But the draft offers no proof, and Dominion officials are suing some Trump advisors for billions for defamation. This was absolute banana republic stuff. No one writing this document or taking this document seriously, in my view, could have been of sound mind. Jake, we don't know who wrote the draft executive order, though there are a lot of rumors. We don't know why it was never signed or if it was seriously considered, but it fits into the desperate maneuvers by Team Trump to deny their unequivocal loss at the polls, even if this paper was not worth the paper it was written on. Jake? Tom Foreman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Do Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and former President Trump want the same thing for the Republican Party in the midterms? CNN Talks to Mitch McConnell next. In our politics lead, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, has the midterms on his mind. And while McConnell says he's mostly on the same page as former President Donald Trump, he does have some strong words for Republican candidates who are not embracing the 2020 election results, the reality of those results. CNN's Manu Raju spoke with the Republican leader. He joins us now live. Manu, tell us about McConnell's strategy. Well, he's trying to avoid nominating candidates he views as unelectable in a general election. And that had been the fear among Republicans, that Donald Trump would choose candidates that he does not view as electable, and ultimately they would be left with a situation with a number of weak candidates in the general election. But that has not yet borne out, according to McConnell, pointing out that in states like in Nevada and Georgia, they are on the same page, noting in primaries like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Ohio that McConnell is fine with all those candidates there. They are on the opposite sides in Alaska, where McConnell is trying to help incumbent Senator Lisa Murkowski. Trump is going after her, but that is a red state likely to stay in Republican hands. There's concern McConnell has about Missouri, a Republican primary that could potentially produce a weak candidate if the scandal-prone former governor, Eric Greitens, emerges from that primary. But Trump so far has stayed neutral in that. Now, at the same time, Jake, McConnell's watching the messaging and language coming out of some of the Republican candidates who are embracing Donald Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen. He told me this. He said, it's important for candidates to remember we need to respect the results of our democratic process unless the court system demonstrates that some significant fraud occurred that would change the outcome. Now, at the same time, Jake McConnell led the fight against efforts by Democrats to expand access at the ballot box, but he is not concerned about that impacting their electoral chances this fall. He told me, I think I can pretty confidently say we won't lose any elections over that issue anywhere in the country. People are concerned about a wholly different set of concerns, inflation, out-of-control border, Afghanistan, the controversy over COVID. He said the thought that a single Senate race in America would be decided over that issue strikes me as being wildly out of touch with what the American people are interested in. And Jake, it remains to be seen if Trump and McConnell may be on opposite sides in two states, in Maryland and in Arizona, where McConnell is courting the governors in those states to run 
and Trump may not be happy if they agree to do so. Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with our political panel, Quinn Hillier, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner, and CNN political commentator, Bakari Sellers, uh, author of Who Are Your People? Uh, thanks so much to both of you for being here. Quinn, let me start with you. Uh, Leader McConnell says he's mostly on the same page as Donald Trump, but he did, t- he did tell Manu, quote, we're going to be all in Alaska helping Lisa Murkowski, and that's one place where the former president and I have a disagreement, unquote. Obviously, it depends on the race. Generally speaking, do you think Trump's role in the midterm elections will help or hurt the Republican Party? Trump uh, can only hurt the Republican Party if he makes the election about him. If the Republican candidates make the election about the issues that they have been running on apart from Trump, if they uh, make it about fighting against the perceived weaknesses in Joe Biden, then they will do well. But if Trump makes it all about him, Republicans are doomed. Uh, Bakari, uh, speaking of uh, congressional leadership, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just literally a few minutes ago tweeted, quote, while we have made progress, much more needs to be done to improve people's lives. This election is crucial. Nothing less is at stake than our democracy. But we don't agonize. We organize. I am running for re-election to Congress to deliver for the people and defend democracy, unquote. She's turning 82 in March, the House Speaker, and, and when she uh, won't, um, I guess, the, the, when, when she last won the, the speakership uh, last year for the fourth time, she promised that would be her last time. What do you think? Is it a mistake for her to run again, or is there really no one else who, who can do the job she can? Well, I, she didn't say that she was going to run for Speaker, I don't believe. I think she just announced she's running for re-election, um, I firmly believe that it's time for new leadership in the House Democratic Caucus. I think it's uh, time for new leadership um, throughout the Democratic Party. Not only do we have to get younger, but we have to be more vibrant and we have to have bigger and bolder ideas to bring in a new generation of voters. Now, I will also say in the same breath that Nancy Pelosi will go down in history as probably the greatest speaker of all time, whether or not you're talking about ushering a, a country through Uh, COVID or passing uh, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. So her legacy is already written, but there comes a time, whether or not you're Nancy Pelosi or whether or not you're, you know, Tom Brady, that that sometimes you have to hang up the cleats when it comes to, you know, being leader of your particular party or leader of your organization. And I think she recognizes that part of being a great leader is knowing when it's time to turn the reins over. And I think that she, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn all need to Uh, possibly usher in new leadership, not saying they shouldn't run for re-election to the House, but usher in new leadership to guide us into a new century. Quinn, uh, I know, Quinn, I know you you disagree with almost everything House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi stands for, but uh, it's hard to argue that she hasn't been effective as Speaker of the House on a tactical and political level in terms of getting what she wants passed through the House of Representatives. Is it bad news for Republicans that she's going to run again or, or Um, Well, what do you think? Well, I think it almost doesn't matter if she runs again, because unless there is a big swing back in the direction the electorate is heading right now, the Democrats probably will not hold a majority in the fall. And so she won't be speaker either way. Uh, She has been effective at 
sort of short-term tactical things, getting legislation passed that she wanted. Uh, the problem that she has had is that uh, is that a lot of what she has pushed through has then made her party unpopular and they've lost in the next election. So she's been both blessing and curse for the Democrats uh, and both blessing and curse for the Republicans. Bakari? I, I just, yeah, no, I, I just have to laugh. I mean, there, there's nothing short-term about passing uh, the Affordable Care Act. And although the messaging around it at the time may not have been what we wanted, the fact is that Democrats across the country are still running on and winning elections on that. And we see that Republicans have been put in a box not being able to put up their own health care bill. While I think there needs to be new leadership, I have to stop anyone in their tracks when they say that Nancy Pelosi has not been an effective uh, uh, speaker. She has been. And even more importantly, She's run circles around those individuals who've been in Republican leadership. And even if she is the minority leader, which I don't think she will be, but even if she is the minority leader, she's going to provide more than formidable opposition for uh, a Speaker McCarthy or whomever that is. And so she has the right to choose what she does. But as someone who watches politics closely and who loves this party, wants it to continue to succeed, I think we need new leadership uh, in those roles. Quinn, can you, I just you jump in and, and, and yes, say that what I meant? was that uh, in, in terms of short-term gains, she passed a very, very important bill in the Affordable Care Act, but largely as a response to that, her party got walloped in the 2010 elections and were in the minority for the next eight years. So again, uh, there, there's some give and some take. She gets the legislation she wants, but it's not always popular uh, with with the public, at least not you know not for for several uh, several election cycles. Quinn, um, we only have about a minute left. I just I'm wondering what you think. You've been very critical of uh, Donald Trump. You've been critical uh, of um, the the lie, the big lie about the election. Um, I'm wondering, uh, assuming that Republicans do take control of the House in the fall who your dream speaker would be of those individuals who are currently in Congress. Are, are, do you like Kevin McCarthy or is there someone else, you know, that all things being I'm equal, not a big you, Kevin you McCarthy fan. I also haven't really liked uh, what Steve Scalise has said about the election, but I have known Steve Scalise as a very fine person going all the way back to 1989. I'd love to see him get a shot. Uh, then again, right now I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Liz Cheney. I think she has shown incredible courage and principle. I would love to see her as speaker, but that's not going to happen. Uh, Bakari, uh, I mean, what do you think in terms of who you would like of the Republicans uh, in the House uh, to be speaker, assuming they took over? Who who is the least objectionable to you uh, were that to happen? I really don't care at this point in time. I just hope Chuck Schumer is still president of the uh, of the Senate. That's about all the Democrats can hold on to. I think the House is a is is gone. Um, But, you know, Jim Jordan, Scalise, McCarthy, I think they're, you know, all, all the same side of the same coin. Bakari Sellers, Quinn Hillier, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Coming up, a newly released study looks at the impact of COVID vaccines on IVF. Stick around. Just into our health lead, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines do not, do not affect the fertility of patients who are undergoing IVF treatments. That's according to a new study published in the journal Obstetrics and gynecology today. Here to discuss uh, Dr. Chris Purnell. She's a public health physician. Dr. Purnell, thanks so much. There have been a ton of false claims circulating on the internet 
that these vaccines affect fertility. What's your big takeaway from this new article? The big takeaway from this new article is that we should believe and trust the science and not the disinformation and the misinformation, unfortunately, that has been circulating in a rampant fashion. Look, I hear practically on a daily basis from either expectant persons or those who are concerned about their future fertility, whether or not these vaccines are safe. And this is just proof yet again, science on top of science, that these vaccines are safe and effective, whether you are pregnant or whether you are considering getting pregnant in the future. This is very welcome news. So if a patient came to you and said, look, this is still a relatively new vaccine. I'm just not 100 percent confident that will that it will not affect my fertility. What's your message? My message is that you actually can be reassured that you will be safe and that you're taking a greater risk if you don't get protected with the vaccine should you become pregnant. We know that those persons who are pregnant have more severe complications and outcomes due to coronavirus infection. Look, we're seeing mothers who are dying and leaving children behind orphaned. We're seeing mothers um, and pregnant persons experiencing stillbirth and things of that nature, none of which can has to happen. And so again, I would reassure with this and let people know that we are winning with the science and we can continue to win with the science. Dr. Purnell, today Israel's COVID advisory group recommended a fourth COVID vaccine dose for everyone in Israel who is 18 years old or older. Do you think that could happen here in the United States? And if so, uh, how soon? Jake, you know, I don't see that happening in the United States. One, we have not been as aggressive as have some others have been, such as Israel, around applying the science um, in new scenarios. We don't know definitively whether or not those higher antibody levels will necessarily reduce severe disease, meaning reduce hospitalization and mortality. And because of that, I believe we're going to focus on getting as many Americans vaccinated and boosted as possible. That doesn't mean that we won't continue to watch with vigilance. And it doesn't mean that those who are immunocompromised, meaning that their immune systems didn't mount a proper or a robust response the first time, that they won't be counseled or advised to get a fourth shot. So a World Health Organization official uh, said that he hopes we can end the emergency phase of the pandemic this year. What exactly does that mean? uh, And what would the next phase of this all look like to you here in the U.S.? Well, right now we're in the throes of an Omicron surge. So an emergency phase is when you have these variants of concern. You see rapid spikes in infections. You see staggering death tolls in a daily basis. Um, Whether or not we will normalize and stabilize once we get past this peak fully in the United States and once other parts of the globe get past the peaks is something that remains to be seen. What I don't want to see happen is that we let our guard down. As long as the coronavirus pandemic continues to surge, continues to uh, flare its horns, we should never be caught asleep at the will. The likelihood that new variants could emerge will always be there as long as a significant portion of the global population is unvaccinated. And we don't know whether or not immunity to Omicron will sustain. Perhaps it will wane just in a similar fashion as has immunity to past strains. And also we don't believe that immunity to Omicron will necessarily portend to immunity against new variants. Dr. Chris Purnell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you as always. Train tracks littered with thousands of empty shipping boxes torn open by thieves. Why this is fueling criticism of the top prosecutor in Los Angeles County. Stay with us. 
International lead four people killed and one wounded when multiple shooters opened fire on a house party near Los Angeles over the weekend. Last year, the city recorded its highest homicide total since 2007. Amid the increase, CNN's Nick Watt reports, L.A. County's new district attorney is now facing a wave of criticism from police, from businesses, from citizens, and from even his own prosecutors for policies they say are not tough enough on criminals. Downtown Los Angeles, packages are being stolen from trains. That trash is the aftermath. What the hell is going on? I mean, look like a third world country. What the hell is going on? Well, Union Pacific blames in large part LA's newish, wokish district attorney, elected in the wake of George Floyd's murder and flanked for his one year anniversary presser by progressive DAs from around the country. We have set a path for ourselves to turn around the criminal legal system in this country. Gascon has ordered his deputy DAs, no under 18s charged as adults, no more three strikes, and in many cases, do not even prosecute most misdemeanors like trespassing. And don't seek more prison time if guns or gangs are involved. All he says to make the system more humane, more equitable. But Union Pacific is now actually asking the DA to rethink his reforms because of this. They claim more than 100 arrests have been made, but apparently not one prosecution. They have not presented 100 cases, okay? They did not present 100 cases to us. That's misleading. Gascon also taking heat after a spate of smash and grab robberies before Christmas. Whether it's fair or not to point the finger at him, the finger is being pointed. The incident follows a string of what police call follow-home robberies. Gascon also taking heat for some headline-making murders. A well-loved Beverly Hills philanthropist shot dead in her home. A 70-year-old nurse murdered at a bus stop. A young clerk stabbed to death in a furniture store. You really got to wake up to what's happening all over Los Angeles. The DA easily survived one recall attempt last year, but now faces another. He has abandoned all of us victims in favor of criminals. The union that represents Gascon's own deputy DAs is suing him. Yes, it is rare. Claiming the directives are not merely radical, but plainly unlawful. He has created this environment where there's no accountability. Criminals are arrested and within 24 hours they're back on the street committing crime. I don't think we have the statistics to show how these new directives are really impacting what's happening on the streets of LA. Latest stats from the sheriff show robbery, burglary and arson have actually fallen since Gascon took office. Unclear why, could be COVID, but like many places, murder is way up. Most crime is down except for homicides. Yes. That's a pretty big exception. Yes. People are scared out there. Yeah. The sheriff calls Gascon's tenure god-awful. And? Well, I can say it's been an absolute disaster for the, for the community. Gascon's comeback. My, my dad used to say that uh, when you wrestle with a pig, you both get muddy and the pig likes it. What is going on with you and Sheriff Villanueva? He's running for election. He's got uh, very strong opponents. I think it's important for the public to understand that his fight is not just with me. He's got to fight with every elected official other than Donald Trump. 
For now, Gascogne's reforms roll on. If at some point the voters decide that this is not the direction that they want to go and they want to go in a different direction, that's what a democracy is all about. By the way, he just wrote back to Union Pacific about all those stolen packages, passing the buck back to them. UP does little to secure or lock trains, he wrote. So Gascon's approach to most misdemeanors is if it's a non-violent crime and if the perp has mental health or substance abuse issues, Gascon would rather that person be diverted towards rehabilitation rather than punished, thrown in jail, thrown in prison, which could end, he says, in an endless cycle of recidivism. But as that deputy DA told me, he says these are social experiments not grounded in reality. Jake. Nick Watt in Los Angeles. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Put down your number two pencils forever. The SAT is making major changes to the college entrance exam. Stay with us. Internationally, high school students will soon be able to say goodbye to those sharpened number two pencils. The SAT exam taken by prospective college students across the country will go all digital starting in 2024. The change comes as the College Board, which developed the tests, has faced extensive criticism about the SAT's fairness and relevance, and as colleges and universities have increasingly made the test optional, with more than 1,800 dropping it from their admission requirements. In another change students are sure to love, the exam will be an hour shorter, and calculators will be allowed for the entire math section. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.